Well, good morning, everyone, and what a privilege it is for me to share the word of God with all of you today live on Sunday morning for the first time in a long time. That's right, here at Rio Vista Community Church. And uh, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Winston Miller, and it's been my privilege to serve as one of the pastors here for the past two years. And my family and I, while we love Rio, we're also excited that God is sending us to plant a new church called Grace Life Church to minister in Lauder Hill and the surrounding communities not too far from here. And as uh, we do so over the next few months, uh, we crave and thank you for your prayers. So I'm really honored uh, to speak with you again today with the third message, as Matt mentioned early in a series that we're calling Jesus is greater. And thank you, Matt, for such a wonderful synopsis of what we're going to talk about today. And thank you for the worship team uh, for those songs which brought us into the presence of God. And so what we're doing is looking at the lives of some of the most familiar names from the Bible. And for the past couple of weeks, Pastor Tom has done quite a remarkable job in relaying uh, the stories of two patriarchs from the Old Testament. Abraham and Joseph, so that we might see God's grace in their lives and ultimately were to see how their lives point us to Christ, because as significant as their lives were, uh, as impactful as the events of their life were, or their actions or their inactions were, none of that mattered as much as Christ, because Jesus was and is greater. And today our prayer is is that Jesus may really be seen in our eyes as the greatest. We can get so distracted not only by the villains uh, that challenge the joy in our life, but also by who we choose to follow as our heroes, whether they be athletes um, or politicians or or business people uh, or Instagram influencers or YouTube stars. If we cultivate mere human beings as the heroes in our lives, we will eventually be very, very disappointed. So right now, what we want to do is is elevate the beauty and magnificence of Jesus Christ. And so today we're going to explore just some of the life of a man in history who lived probably uh, the most exciting life besides Jesus in all of Scripture. And I mean, if if Hollywood makes not one, not two, but at least three blockbuster movies about your life, it had to be exciting, right? So if if you've ever seen The Prince of Egypt or The Ten Commandments um, or or the lesser known Exodus, God of Gods and Kings, you know who I'm talking about. Today we'll be looking at the life of Moses. And one writer called his life the most cinema-ready story in sacred scripture. The ten plagues in Egypt, uh, the parting of the Red Sea, the receiving of the law on the mountain, building the tabernacle. There's so much detail uh, in scripture given regarding his life that we can only do a broad survey today, try to focus in on one main aspect of his life that points to Christ in a very remarkable way. But there's no way to overstate the importance of Moses in scripture. He's the one who wrote the first five books of the Bible so that Israel and so that you and I would know our God 
He's the one who God gave the law, the architecture of the tabernacle and worship there. He established the Levitical priesthood. Uh, He's probably the most influential biblical character until Jesus. And there's many obvious parallels between the life of Moses and Jesus that are pointed out in scripture. For example, when Moses was born as a Jewish slave in Egypt, the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh, he ordered the slaughter of all males two years and younger to protect his reign and consequently tried to destroy the one who would become the savior of the Israelites. And when Jesus was born, a king of Palestine named Herod ordered the slaughter of all males two years and younger to protect his throne to try to destroy the savior of the world. And there are many more parallels. New Testament writers uh, saw Jesus's life as being typified or foreshadowed by Moses's life. Moses is known as uh, the true original prophet. And in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, here's what Moses declares about himself. He says, uh, the Lord, your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And so in the book of Acts, uh, hundreds of years later, chapter three and seven, both Peter and Stephen declare that Jesus is that prophet who Moses prophesied about. The writer of the book of Hebrews acknowledges the greatness of Moses, but he writes that Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. But in all the parallels between Jesus and Moses, there's one way that God used Moses so beautifully that, uh, that typifies Jesus that I, I couldn't preach this message without talking about it because to the Israelites enslaved in Egypt, Moses was known as their mediator. And and a mediator is someone who helps to resolve conflict between disputing parties. And mediation is necessary when two parties are are not in agreement. And and it may be that they they may just have to have different perspectives uh, so that they can understand each other better. And that's where a mediator will come in. But, but think about a case where one party is always right about everything and the other party is never right about anything. Because that, my friends, is the reality of the relationship and the case between humanity and God. Psalmist David says that we were born in sin and we were shaped in rebellion against God. And sometimes even when we defend ourselves, we're only serving to, uh, uh, to reinforce our rebellion and our need for judgment and punishment. So we need a mediator. And so I want us to notice that for the Israelite people, Moses was their go-between, their intercessor, their mediator. So let's take a look at Moses' history a bit and spend some time there so we can understand how God Uh, molded him and made him into that even though he was imperfect. And then we want to see how Jesus Christ is the greater mediator. So Abraham's grandson, Jacob, who was also known as Israel, he had 12 sons. And and, and a couple weeks ago, we looked at Abraham's life. And last week, we looked at the life of Israel's second to last son, Joseph, and how his life points us to Christ. But, But Israel's third son, Levi from whom all the Levite priests would come, 
He turns out to be the great-grandfather of Moses, and people are still living relatively long lives at that time, and Moses is born about 400 years after Joseph. But when Moses is born, there is now a king, a pharaoh, who does not know or care about what Joseph did and how he rescued Egypt and the surrounding nations from starvation during a very significant famine. And and Pharaoh now saw the prosperity of Israel's descendants as a threat to the stability and security of Egypt. So out of fear, Pharaoh ruthlessly uh, forced them into slavery and he, he tried to restrict their population growth by ordering the death, the murder of their newborn sons by throwing them into the Nile River. And it's against this backdrop that Moses' mother hides him for three months after he's born and, and then makes a basket out of papyrus. And, and that basket in the Hebrew is, is really called an ark. And, and then she coats it with tar and with pitch. And she places Moses in this ark and then places him into the waters of the Nile River where there is death all around him. The waters that were meant to destroy him. And what I want you to notice is how God is making a way for the Israelites, even though all indications were that God had forgotten about them. But he was at work making a way for his people like he always is. And he never stops working, even when we don't see it. So miraculously, the infant Moses is plucked out of the water by the princess of Egypt, Pharaoh's daughter. And and Pharaoh's daughter feels sorry for this child because she knows it's one of the Hebrew babies whom her father has sentenced to death. And and while this is happening, Moses' older sister, Miriam, is watching and she bravely approaches Pharaoh's daughter and asks her if she would like a Hebrew nurse for the baby. And, And thus, Moses ends up back in the care of his real mother until he's about 12 years old when he's returned to Pharaoh's daughter as her son. And he is educated and nurtured uh, in, by the royal family of Egypt. And you can only imagine the things that he's taught, the things that he's learning, the global perspective that he probably has, the level of responsibility that he was given. But he also had some formative years with his mother, his Hebrew mother, and he's well aware that he is really a descendant of Abraham and Isaac, of Jacob. He's well aware that he is a child of the one true God. And although he's not a slave, he he is a Hebrew. And honestly, would you agree that this is enough to give him a bit of an identity crisis? Sometimes there are just circumstances that are out of control of your life that causes you to wonder just just who you are. But I want you to know that when you are God's child, he he is truly working all things out for your good and for his glory. So one day, while still a part of the royal family, and and he's about 40 years old now, Moses is probably out on a chariot ride, and he sees an Egyptian beating one of the Hebrew slaves. And this can't be the first time that he's seen it, but this time he's had enough. And no doubt in his mind, he's thinking, I'm a Hebrew. I'm not really an Egyptian. I've got to defend my brothers, even though I'm not in slavery like them. And so Moses records about himself that 
that he didn't see anyone else around, so he defended the Hebrew slave, and in the process, he killed the Egyptian. And he most likely checked his surroundings to see if anybody saw, and then he hides the body, and he goes back home to the palace, and and now, of course, he's feeling like he's betrayed his Egyptian upbringing, but he's feeling in solidarity with his brothers and sisters in, in, in the Hebrew land, and he goes for a chariot ride the next day back into the Hebrew side of town, and he sees now two Hebrews fighting, and that bothers him. And he, and, he, and he looks at the one who is beating the other because this was more of a beat down than a fight. And, and, and he says, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? And he's shocked to hear the man look at him and said, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Whoa, wait a minute. Moses says, I, I, I tried to defend your people and do good to your people. It's my people. And you're mad at me? What what kind of mindset is that? What has this oppressive Egyptian regime done to you? But the question was a good question. It really was a prophetic question. Who indeed made him a ruler and a judge? And hundreds of years later in the New Testament, Stephen would also say in Acts chapter 7, verse 35, he said, this Moses whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man... God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. But that hadn't happened yet. And Moses did not yet know the plan that God was developing for him. And he soon discovered that Pharaoh found out about the murder and was looking to kill him. So Moses became a felon on the run. And we pointed out in personal worship this week that Moses, he was, he's too much of a Hebrew for the Egyptians. And he was too much of an Egyptian for the Hebrew people. So, so if you've ever felt like you just didn't fit in, Moses could probably identify with you. And, and he was essentially banished to the desert, into the wilderness. And he found a priest in Midian who took him in. He was 40 years old at the time. He married the priest's beautiful daughter, Zipporah, began a second career as a shepherd in the wilderness. And that would last for 40 more years until one day Moses was drawn to a particular mountain. They would later call it the mountain of the Lord. And he saw God's presence in a tree, in a bush, burning like a fire. And and God commands him to take his shoes off of his feet and leave the residue of the world behind. And God declares to Moses, he declares himself, he, he says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And God tells Moses, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. So the one true God of the universe is choosing him out of everyone on the earth to send him to the Hebrews who rejected him to free them from the Egyptians who who raised him and educated him, but they wanted to kill him to say that he was reluctant to go. It's a gigantic understatement. His life was now relatively stress-free, you know, nice tent, beautiful wife, uh, two growing boys, him and the sheep every day. But God 
had something greater in mind. Aren't you glad? God had something greater. God was going to essentially uh, put Moses in the middle. He would represent God's word to the Israelites and he would bring their response to God. He would be a mediator. But like you and I would most likely do, Moses had some major reasons as to why he's not the man for the job. As a matter of fact, he had five objections. First one in Exodus 3.11, he says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? It's been 40 years and there's nothing significant about me except the price that's on my head. And then number two, he says, suppose I go and say the God of your fathers has sent me to deliver you. And they say, well, what's his name? What do I tell him? But God says, tell them I am who I am has sent me to you. That doesn't really uh, convince Moses. So he says, number three, what if they don't believe me? And they say, the Lord did not appear to you. Well, God said, well, here's a number of, of, of miracles that you can do to perform, to, pr- to prove that I've been with you. That doesn't really help him either. So in Exodus 4.10, here's a fourth objection, a, a classic. He says, God, you may not know this, and, and you're probably finding this out now, uh, but I have never been eloquent. Uh, Neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and of tongue. And God seems almost incredulous in his response. He said, who do you think made your mouth? I know how to make it speak. But tell you what, I'm going to make this mediation thing easier. I will help you speak and teach you what to say. But not even that satisfies Moses. So in, 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 in Exodus 4.13, he's got a last objection and he stops trying to be creative. And so he just says, pardon your servant, Lord, please just send someone else. And with that objection, God is angry with Moses and tells him he's already sent his brother Aaron to meet him and Aaron will speak for him when he speaks for God. And I'm telling you, Moses just seems like such a poor choice, a man who needs a mediator to mediate. But God keeps making provision after provision over objection after objection because he has chosen Moses for this. And and why in the world is the God of the the universe, who you figure has got to have some options, why is he spending time trying to convince this man to go on his behalf? How can Moses, a mere man, a sinful man, a failure of a man, speak on behalf of God to a people who would most likely reject him and not believe him? Remember, Moses knew these people. Even when he tried to defend him, they turned on him. They didn't view him as one of them, even though he lost everything to become like one of them. And they rejected him, and he knew they would most likely reject him again, if not now, eventually. So when all of his other pleas with God failed, he just said, please just send someone else, anybody else, just not me. But before he was born, he had been chosen by God for this. And not only chosen by God, God loved him, protected him, equipped him, supported him so that he would grow in his courage to lead God's people to faith even over their objections. I wonder if that encourages you today, that even when you feel so inadequate and even disobedient, God wants to use you for his glory, 
Because that just reminds me of how the God of the universe pursued me and so many of you, my brothers and sisters in Christ. He sent his son Jesus to earth. And and Isaiah said that Jesus was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering. And he was acquainted or familiar with pain and grief. Uh, Isaiah said, like from one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised. And we held him in low esteem. But Jesus was obedient and faithful and he lived a sinless life. And then he gave that life in death. Then God the Father raised him from the dead. And by his spirit, he overcame my past and he overcame all of my objections. He convinced me of my rebellion against him. And he called me to repent of my sins and to place my faith in Jesus Christ and him alone to rescue me from slavery to sin and to give me a life of freedom where he has equipped me to do everything he's called me to do. Because as Ephesians 2 says, we are now his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do the good works which he has prepared for us even before we were born. Why me? Why you? I don't know why, but I'm so glad he did. So back to Moses, God tells Moses that those who were trying to kill him now are dead. So Moses heads back to Egypt and and life has taken him to a place where he doesn't really have much of an opinion anymore. He speaks only what thus says the Lord, both to Pharaoh and to the Hebrew people. And God shows out to defend his people. After 10 horrifying plagues, Pharaoh finally answers Moses' demand from the Lord to let my people go. And he says, you go. And the Hebrew people, they've witnessed all of the miraculous wonders from God. As they leave Egypt, they see the presence of God as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night that never leaves them. And, And God leads them, hundreds of thousands of Hebrew people, to the foot of the Red Sea. And even though Pharaoh told them to leave Egypt... Out of grief and fear, his heart became hardened by sin again. He changed his mind and he led his armies to pursue them, to try to recapture them, to try to re-enslave them. But Pharaoh's heart is not the only one that has become affected. Exodus 14.10 shows the response of the people that really becomes a refrain for them. They said, when, it says, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes Behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. And I can just imagine Moses saying, wait a minute. I don't remember that conversation. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Really? This is a response of a people who have become fearful in in the face of evil, evil opposition. They're used to giving in to sin. And it's it's empowering presence in their life. They'd rather give in to slavery, rather uh, to trust God to save them through the challenges of freedom. This is not great faith. Uh, This is little, if any, faith at all. And it's a response that's driven by fear. And I just want to 
let you know that life will bring some things to your doorstep that brings an almost irrational fearful response from us because we've not yet learned to trust the God who has pursued us and who has protected us and who has loved us and who has freed us. And so Moses, because he is their mediator, gives them this comforting word from the Lord. He says to the people, fear not, stand firm or stand still and see the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. Stand still, be still. It's not your efforts that have gotten you here and your efforts are not going to save you now. And don't you know that God is still saving this way, that we are saved by God's grace through faith And not by our works, it's by the work of Jesus Christ, uh, lest we should have anything to claim that our efforts saved us. No, we stand still and we see the salvation of the Lord. So at this beach of the Red Sea with Pharaoh's army pursuing, Tim Keller once gave an illustration I want to share with you. In Exodus 14, 22, it says that the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Can you imagine that? Because I can imagine there's a couple types of people that would walk through that. Those who are, I think it was like in the Prince of Egypt, right? Where they're looking and they're seeing the the eel over here and the big shark over there. And they're like, oh yeah, God is working on our behalf. We are going to make it. But then there's also those people who are walking through and they say, oh my God, we're going to die. We're going to die. We're going to die. That water's going to come down on us. But they were all saved. They all made it to the other side. They all made it to the other side. Different qualities of faith. Some would seem to have like no faith at all, except for the, the, the faith to put one foot in front of the other, following Moses, following God. And Tim Keller said this. He says, you're not saved because of the quality of your faith. You're saved because of the object of your faith. And the object of their very weak and meager faith was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God used their mediator, Moses, to once again help them escape from the Egyptians. One more illustration from Moses, Moses' life as a mediator, and then we'll wrap up. They're uh, three months after leaving Egypt, they arrive at Mount Sinai. And Moses goes up into the mountain to talk with God and receive the law, the Ten Commandments. And the presence of God on the top of the mountain was extremely scary. Flashes of lightning, trumpet sounds, thunder, smoke. And the people tell Moses in Exodus chapter 20 verse 19, they say, you speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us lest we die. And Moses relayed to them what the Lord said. And they said, everything the Lord said, we will do. But Moses was with the Lord on the mountaintop for 40 days and 40 nights, and the people lost patience. And so they asked Aaron uh, to, to make them a God that they can see, that they can control, because they say, we don't know what happened to Moses. 
And so Aaron makes a golden calf and they begin to worship that idol as if it was Jehovah God. And while Moses is on the mountain, he has no clue of what's happening below him. But God sees. And and here is God's response in Exodus chapter 32, verse 9 through 14. And I want you to understand it from the perspective of God's holiness. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. And Moses is shocked. He says, uh, uh, that sounds pretty final. Except for the fact that it is God who has invited Moses into his presence, not just to receive the law but to intercede for the people. And so that's what Moses does. He's learned to love God. And because of God, he's also learned to love God's people. And the Bible records in verse 11, it says, Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Number two, why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Number three, Lord, turn from your burning anger. Number four, Lord, relent from this disaster against your people. And number five, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. Did you count them with me? Five pleas for God's mercy. Moses has grown from making five objections to having anything at all to do with this. To five pleas on behalf of the people of God. Moses knows that God's holiness has to take sin seriously. That's what's happening here. So Moses, as the mediator, makes intercession for the people. And God, and, and the God who knows everything and is everywhere, he didn't, he didn't have to have his arm twisted to spare his people. Here's what happened in his sovereign plan. The God of the universe brought salvation for his people through the mediator he had chosen to intercede on their behalf so that his holiness was never violated and so that he could extend mercy and grace to the Israelites and he would fulfill his covenant promise to them to be their God and they to be his people. And so it's great as a mediate, of a mediator as Moses was, I want you to know that Jesus is even greater. Friends, we still need a mediator. And Moses is no longer with us. He was considered faithful, but he even disqualified himself from going into the promised land with the people he led there. And he, only, he died only seeing it. But here we are, and although the Egyptian empire has fallen, we're still slaves without Christ. We're slaves to sin, slaves to the worship of gods that we think we can control, like like the false gods of comfort or power or money or sex, gods who can't lead us anywhere. They'll only disappoint us because they have no 
power to free us. They only have the power to enslave us. And like Moses had to intervene and intercede for a people who too often rejected him and and rebelled against their only hope. And even after they were free, their minds were still enslaved. They behaved like enslaved people. But it's not just them, is it? It's us. Some listening to me right now and watching us today that find themselves in the grip of addiction or anxieties or relationships that challenge your desire to walk with God. Those thoughts, those behaviors, even people in your lives that want to control your heart or enslave your mind. And I want to encourage you today to come to Jesus. He is the He is the greater mediator because he was truly a human being who empathizes with every weakness, with all your faults, with your guilt, and even with the shame that you have. And and even though he experienced all of that, he fully trusted God, never sinned against God. And so when you put your trust in him, God counts his life as your life. And he frees you from the bondage to sin. And he gives you his Holy Spirit so that that enslaved mindset will give way to a renewed mind in Christ. A new mind. And and because you are in Christ, even when you do sin, the Bible says that we have an advocate with God. Jesus Christ, the righteous Hebrews 7.25 says that only Jesus is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives. He eternally lives. He forever lives to intercede for his people. So he is the true hero. And because of him, we can be reconciled to God in a way that that we're not just no longer enemies of God. We're not just friends of God. Now we are adopted into the family of God as his sons and daughters. I'm no longer a slave to sin. I am a child of God. But I could never have approached God on my own. His holiness, his justice, his righteousness, it would eradicate my life before I even got a word out. So Jesus speaks for me. Jesus prays for me. Jesus fights for me. Jesus knows me, yet he still loves me. And he still intercedes for me. So I want to encourage you today, come to Jesus. He's the only one qualified and willing and able to be your mediator for this life so that you can spend eternity with him. Let us pray. God, our Father, we come to you today knowing that we are sinful, knowing that without you we are enslaved to sin. But thank you, God, that you loved us so much. And this is how you loved us. That you sent your only begotten son 
that whoever believes in him should not perish, but would have everlasting life. May you touch our hearts today to confess our need for you. To confess the fact that we are separated from you and that we need Jesus to intercede for us and to give you thanks and to trust in the Jesus who has already given his life for us, died for us so that we might have everlasting life. Thank you, Lord, for the life of Moses and what we have learned from him. But thank you, God, for Jesus Christ in your name and in the name of Jesus Christ, your son, we pray. Amen.